You have exposed 2.1, a Netrunner Reboot Project podcast. Episode 16, One Big Headache. Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week is Chimera, the first mythic ice that makes its appearance in Cyber Exodus. In the reboot card pool, there are only five mythic ice. Three more come in the lunar cycle, so that's the third cycle. It's a little ways out. And then one just recently appeared in Mind and Mayhem, the most recent booster. Chimera has a res cost of two and a strength of one, when you res it, you choose Sentry, Codegate, or Barrier, and it gains that sub subtype until you de-res it, which happens automatically at the end of the turn. And it has a single subroutine to end the run. The flavor text on Chimera says, Three heads, one big headache. And I selected this. I uh, should have used pop-up window, because I'm going to talk about pop-up window later, but it's still an ice and this episode is pretty much all about ice. I do have a couple other small segments, uh, but it's mostly about ice. Breaking news. The first Reboot Worlds was held on August 12th, and the champion was Cleric. The runner-up was NMH. Cleric is the tech guy behind the Reboot Project. Their decks have been posted on RetechyDB, and so you can go to uh, you can go to the website and take a look at those. I will pro I'll provide a link in the show notes. Cleric was running Max and a Replicating Perfection out of Gentechi, whereas NMH had Kate and the brand new Echo Memvaults identity. As of this recording, some of the Swiss rounds are still available on the Big Boy's Twitch channel, so you can check out some of them. Unfortunately, uh, he wasn't able to stream the finals. There was also some discussion that uh, this, this went well and more people wanted to do something like this, not have to wait a whole other year. Maybe there will be a seasonal kind of approach. So uh, that will be interesting if we can get that running, and obviously we'll announce it here. Anonymous tip. Here are three quick things from the FAQ, all having to do with trashing or getting rid of cards. Uh, first, sneak door beta. If it is trashed during a run that it initiated, the run is still treated as a run on HQ if it is successful. So you imagine that you trigger sneak door beta's clickability, run archives, run into, say, Roto Turret. Well, I wouldn't work Roto Turret. Run into, say, Ichi and lose a program and that you lose Sneak Door Beta, but you can keep running. It doesn't stop you. And then uh, it's still at a run on HQ. So that's interesting to know. Uh, Archer and Brain Trust. Brain Trust is the Genteki agenda that should be a project. It should be Project Brain Trust, but it's not. 
If you over-advance this 3-2 agenda, you can get agenda counters, and they give you a discounted cost on resing ice. Well, what if you have brain trust, and then you forfeit brain trust to res archer? Well, the answer is that if it's over-advanced, you still get the discounted res cost on archer. And one question from the FAC, if the runner steals an agenda from Jinteki using the core set identity, so a personal evolution, but has no cards in hand, who wins if the agenda gives the runner his seventh point? All right, so you're picturing the situation. Runner has zero cards, steals an agenda, should lose a card from net damage, has no cards, but the agenda also gives the runner seven points. So who wins? The answer, the runner wins. Whenever a player has seven or more agenda points in his score area, the game immediately ends. The game ending takes precedence over any conditional ability that triggers when an agenda is stolen. I just wanted to share those few little bits. I didn't have any specific uh, suggestions, so when in doubt, I fall back on the fact. Data Sucker, Ice Placement, Part 4. As you may have noticed, this episode is a little late. I intended to have it up at the normal time, but really it's this portion of it that has really delayed me quite a bit. I've taken a lot of time to try, try to craft this in a way that is as comprehensive as possible and hopefully, hopefully, still interesting to listen to and doesn't just sound like I'm reading the phone book. Um, but uh, because this is running so late and because I'm going to be out of town, um, this is the only episode in this two-week time frame. Right? So there, though this is coming out very late, I'm not going to have another one in just a couple days. It'll be another week before I have the next episode. Anyway, that's not part of the segment. So before I get into part four here, which is the meat of this ice placement topic. Let me do a recap. I've always thought of ice as one of three types, barrier, code gate, sentry. Uh, That's obviously true, but as we've been discussing, there's another axis or another lens through which you can sort ice into end of the run ice and taxing ice. So in part one of this series in episode 12, I read a blog post from the Satellite Uplink by David Sutcliffe where he talked about these end-the-run and taxing types of ice and then subdivided them even further into binary and analog. Something that's binary can be turned off by icebreakers for just a minimal cost. Typically one or two credits, maybe three, but definitely not four. And so I've been thinking about this subdivision for the last few weeks and just for my own processing here, uh, before we get into the, again, get into the meat of it, I have some additional thoughts. I'm just trying to sort things out in my head. So binary and the run ice, that's easy to understand. It's gear check ice, chimera ice wall, stuff that it's really cheap to break um, and then it stops them completely, but it's cheap to break once they have the breaker. Okay. Gear check, binary and the run. Makes sense. 
Analog taxing ice also makes sense to me. It's big stuff that costs a lot to get through, but doesn't stop the runner. So Heimdall is a good example of this. Even though it has end-the-run subroutines on it, it takes clicks. So you can spend basically an entire turn, three clicks, and get through Heimdall. Right? So that's why it's taxing and not strictly end-the-run. But thinking about binary taxing ice and analog end-the-run ice, that trips me up. I have a hard time keeping it all in my head. I guess I can't think about four buckets at the same time, only two. So analog and the run ice can function as a gear check, although typically it's going to be really expensive to res. And because of that, it can also be a big tempo hit for the corp. So it's probably something that's tough to res early. Think Tollbooth, right? Tollbooth costs eight credits to res. That's really expensive. It's effective, right? It shuts the runner out, but it's tough. So but what makes it analog? See, even when the runner gets an icebreaker, it's still expensive. For example, with ice wall, uh, you, get the, your, you get your fracture out. Now ice wall costs one credit to break. No big deal. But toll booth, you get your decoder out, Gordian blade, let's say, and it's still seven credits to get through, even though you have a breaker. So that's why it's analog, because it continues to be useful. So really, it's actually it actually becomes taxing ice, in a way. Analog and the run ice is taxing once the breaker is out, kind of converts it into taxing. So it's, and it's, it's, yeah, so you can see I'm struggling with this because it's not just end the run. It does end the run. It does keep them out if they don't have enough money, but it's also a big tax. So most things, as we see, if you have binary taxing and analog taxing and analog end the run ice, which is also taxing, really most of your ice, it's about the tax. And then again, this fourth part is binary taxing. So not a gear check because it doesn't stop the runner, but it's just something usually fairly cheap. Although Roto turret at four credits, I guess got an end the run. So that's not a good example. Usually fairly cheap. So, but the runner doesn't necessarily just want to run through it, but they can. But if you have a breaker, now it's just a small tax. So Neuro Katana is a good example of this. It's a killer. It's strength three. So if you have Mimic, it costs you one. So that's a tax, but it's not much of one now that you have a breaker. All right. So those are the four buckets. We've talked about them multiple times already, but I'm going to keep coming back to these. This is actually what most of this section is about, is sorting ice based on these different buckets, binary and analog and the run, binary and analog taxing ice. Now, why does that matter? Well, part two of this series in episode 14 was a blog post from the big boy where he discussed the importance of being intentional with the way you place your ice. It matters where ice is installed. Okay, but why does it matter? Well, part three, back in episode 15 last time, 
was some Reddit threads that we discussed that suggested where you want to put certain types of ice. So for example, R&D, you typically want taxing ice. One person suggested it be a tax of three early in the game, six in the middle of the game. So probably not binary and the run ice, but analog and the run ice might be okay. Against HQ, you want it to be binary. You want to keep them out against criminal, especially, even putting two ice there if you need to. Archives, you want taxing ice if they're going to run there repeatedly, like if you are, again, playing against criminal, sneak door beta, against perhaps anarch if it's noise, uh, or against Jintaki's replicating perfection when they're going to want to run some central. So something taxing. Um, and then maybe even an end the run on archives for some added protection there, or if you want to score with replicating perfection, because they can't successfully run the central. Well, no, they still bounce off and they can go run the remote. So I guess that's not true. For an asset remote, something that's maybe a binary tax. Uh, so the point there is just a little bit more of a roadblock to make essentially the trash cost on the asset be a little higher. But for your scoring remote, to score early, you want binary and the run, something cheap, something that stops them. And for late scores, multiple taxing ice, ideally coupled with defensive upgrades, so that it's as expensive to run through as possible, and they can only do it once a turn, or maybe only once every other turn. Because when you think about something costing six or eight or ten credits to get through, I mean, think about our, our usual rubric of one click is one credit. How long is it going to take you to make six or eight or ten credits, right? A couple turns. Even if you're able to do two credits a turn with magnum opus, it's an entire turn of clicking to make eight credits. So having that be as taxing as possible for late game scoring. Now, part four. We're going to sort all the ice in the current 2.1 card pool into buckets based on everything we've previously discussed so that we can have a good sense of what types of ice we have this is going to inform us going forward as we start to discuss archetypes to know like, well, here you're going to want to put a taxing ice. Well, we need to know which ones are those. Right, we're going to, going to make it explicit. We're going to just make it very clear rather than just speak in generalities. I want it to be as specific as possible. Well, for our purposes here, um, to keep things a little more simple, barriers we're going to compare to Corroder, Code Gates to Gordian Blade. And those are the basic uh, two strength, one credit to boost by one strength, one credit to break. And so it's the simplest way to compare various to, uh, icebreakers to ice. And for sentries, well, as I've said before, killers are weird. You know, I was thinking as I was working on this, what if there was a killer that functioned like Corroder and Gordian Blade? Just, you know, one for one boost, break a subroutine for one credit. And then, of course, I realized there is. It's called Garot. It's just that it doesn't come along until the 10th expansion pack. But essentially, it's a mix of Mimic and Ninja, right up to needing two MU and costing just one less than those two combined. So I'm going to use Garot for the sentries. That way the math is all the same. 
And you know, the game sort of obfuscates some of the math here by providing wonky boost to break numbers, uh, splitting the actual strength of ice across two different numbers. And it's not the numbers you think. The strength is one part of it, but the number of subroutines is the other relevant number on a piece of ice, which is fun and interesting because it means that you can choose to spend a little less at the cost of some other effect. But we're just going to keep it as simple as possible. So when I'm comparing, you know, one icebreaker to a piece of ice, using these basic icebreakers keeps the math really simple. I'm going to start with one of the two pieces of ice that is not just basic barrier code gate sentry, Chimera, the mythic ice. Uh, the title card for this episode, uh, in a way, is kind of the ultimate binary and the run ice because it's three cards in one, right? And it's ultimate binary because basically all your breakers break it for one. Uh, there are a few exceptions. Battering Ram, Aurora, and Peacock break it for two. Ninja needs three. But otherwise, everything breaks it for one. Chimera is binary and the run. It can be very expensive if you have to keep reusing it, but it, it does the job. Let's talk about barriers. At this point, there are seven in the pool, and they follow a fairly simple progression of how much it costs to break them for Corroder. Ice Wall costs one. Wall of Static is two. Snowflake is three. TMI is four. Wall of Thorns is four just to break the end the run, but five to break the whole thing. In a similar way, Heimdall 1.0 is six to break the end the runs, and seven for the whole thing. Hadrian's Wall is seven. So, looking at those costs to break, recognizing that binary is cost one and two, three, maybe, it depends on the deck you're playing against. Not going to go into a whole lot of detail on this, I'm going to refer to things that cost three as being on the bubble. Sort of binary in some situations, analog in other situations. Like if the runner has a lot of money, it's going to seem more binary. If the runner is criminal, it might seem more binary. But in many other cases, it'll be more analog. So the binary and the run are ice wall and wall of static. Snowflake is on the bubble. And for more than one reason, because you can also let the subroutine fire and then spend money on the Psy game. So that could become taxing or it could be really cheap. Maybe you spend nothing. And then our analog and the run are TMI, Wall of Thorns, Heimdall, and Hadrian's Wall, progressively larger as we go. There's some outliers as far as, far as it's, it's almost like a one-to-one break to res cost, like ice wall costs one to res, one to break. Um, but wall of static costs three to res, only two to break. Snowflake only costs one to res, but three to break because of the side game. TMI only costs three to res, but four to break because of the trace. That can mean that it gets unresed right away. So how does this analysis, this sorting change if the runner is using a different breaker? Well, if you're using Snowball, from Wall of Static up is always going to be one credit more. So now Wall of Static becomes on the bubble. 
Snowflake joins the rest as being analog. A battering ram is the same, although even the low end is two to break. Aurora makes even wall of static analog because it's going to cost four to break wall of static. And I'll mention Crypsis here in passing, but basically everything with Crypsis is really expensive. Where you're, it becomes taxing for Crypsis to do anything. Like even Chimera and Ice Wall cost you two and a token, a virus counter. So what you're saving if you're using Crypsis, uh, you're probably using with other stuff. The, the Anarch tools, or is the only breaker you're using, so you're not paying the extra cost to do everything else. All right, so barriers is pretty simple and straightforward. To sort through, let's talk code gates. There are eight. Now, even though five of those code gates have some version of an end run sub end the run subroutine, there are only two of them that actually have a hard end the run. That, that means that there's there's no way other way to get around them. Uh, here's what I mean: pop up window ends the run unless the runner spends a click. I mean a credit. So aside from yog which we're ignoring for the moment, it's going to cost you at least one to use the breaker. So yes, it's an end the run ice because technically it can end the run, but really it's a very small taxing ice. I suppose you would call it binary taxing because it's so cheap, but it's never really off. Like it's just a tax of one. A Victor 1.0 has an end the run, but it's a bioroid, so you can click through it. So actually, it's interesting. Victor is quite similar to Eli 1.0, upcoming in pack six, the perennial favorite. In reboot, both are three to res. Both are four strength. Both have at least one end the run. And then for the second, Eli has another end the run. It's a barrier. And Victor has a brain damage which typically you're not going to want to run through. So it's kind of like an in the run and it's a code gate. I mean, and code gates tend to be more expensive than barriers because look at Corroder versus Gordian Blade. Corroder costs two to install, Gordian Blade costs four. So in a way, this relegates Victor, or I guess promotes Victor, to analog taxing ice. The tax being either two clicks or one click and a brain damage, or three or four credits, three if you take the brain damage. So it's on the low end of analog, but it's in exactly the same place as Eli. And then the third code gate with a soft end the run is Viper, which needs a trace to end the run, a trace three. So that trace three makes it quite a bit harder than both Pop-Up and Victor, but you can still pay through it without a breaker if you have enough money. But at the point where you're paying through it, likely you're spending at least three credits to break that subroutine. And then with a breaker, it costs the same as Victor to get through. Three credits to break the end the run, four credits to break both. So I think we're also going to put this on the low end of taxing because you can pay through it. However, the other two have a hard end the run. You have to break it. Enigma and Tollbooth. Enigma is going to get, you're going to get through it for one or two, depending on whether you let the lose a click subroutine fire. And Tollbooth for Gordian Blade costs seven. 
So that's including the boost, the break, and the initial three credit tax. There are five of the code gates. The other three are weird Jinteki code gates. The two of them are actually what I'm going to call combo ice because they require you to put them at least second in a, in a server, right? The second ice protecting a server because they do something to the one that you come into next. Sensei creates end the run subroutines on subsequent ice. So you can, it can turn the one behind it into either a binary or an analog end the run. Itself, Sensei, if you want, to, you want to avoid that, it's on the low end of taxing at a four to break. Of course, it's on the, if it's on the inside, well, that's a stupid place to put it. Don't put it on the inside. It's on the low end. Uh, it costs nothing. Down there, just let it go. And Chum is also true, but instead of adding an end the run subroutine like Sensei does, it converts that next piece of ice into a significant analog taxing piece, whatever it might have been to start with. Chum itself is what I'm going to call on the bubble, three to break it. But if you intend to go through the next piece of ice and it has an end the run, that's adding plus four, it's going to turn anything that's binary into analog. So you see, that's what I mean by combo. You probably want to break both of these. So in a way they are taxing at a tax of three or four but they always have to be paired with something else or they don't do anything at all. And the third Jinteki code gate, cell portal, it's, uh, it's actually the reverse of the other two. It really wants to be the innermost piece of a deep server. The theory is that the runner will have to go through your tower of ice twice, which is the ultimate in taxing credits. Uh, but in reality, if the runner can't pay the six, which is what it costs, to get through it, and then they get kicked out to the outermost piece, then they'll probably just jack out at that point. But still, that six, I mean, you can run through it. You don't need your decoder, but it's going to get really expensive. So, I mean, so portal, yeah, you know, I, I know it's not good, but man, it looks like it's good. Why doesn't Cell Portal work, especially in Reboot, where it's cheaper to res? Why doesn't it work on the inner part of a server where you're trying to tax the runner out or you're trying to, you have a defensive upgrade? It seems like it would be great. Anyway, to summarize, for code gates, you have one binary and the run, Enigma. You have one that's binary taxing. Kinda. Pop-up window. It's not binary, but it is taxing. You have one analog and the run in Tollbooth. You have some analog taxing ice in Victor 1.0, which costs three or four, or two clicks. Viper, which costs three or four. And Cell Portal, which costs six, and that's kind of a lot for one piece of ice. And then you have your combo pieces that can create, uh, make other ice into end the run or taxing ice, and in themselves are analog taxing, chum at three and sensei at four. Now, how does all of this change if the runner is not using Gordian Blade, but using something else? Well, if you're using Zool Keymaster, 
Zoo.13, typically you're just paying one credit more. So that doesn't really change the categorization on any of these, except Enigma. Now Enigma is going to cost three instead of two if you're breaking both subroutines. And so you're, and then the ones that were uh, potentially three, like Victor and Viper, are now four. So they're definitely more analog. And Peacock generally aligns with Zoo, actually. It's a bit higher on the mid-range code gates and a bit lower, uh, even, even than Gordian Blade on the big ones like Tollbooth. But still, the categorizations all tend to hold against these three decoders. And then we have sentries. This is the big one. There are 13 sentries in the pool currently. Of these, let's, let's take care of the end the runs first. There's only two with a hard end the run and two with a soft end the run. Roto turret is the binary here. Everybody breaks it for one, except ninja. Cost three for ninja, of course. And uh, you can break the entire thing for two. You can break the in the run route subroutine for one, the whole ice for two. And then archer, well, here's your big analog end the run, right? Ninja and Garot break the end the run subroutine only. And it still costs five. If you want to break all the subs, and you probably do, at least the ones that trash your programs, you're up to eight. Meanwhile, Femme Fatale and Pipeline need nine to break the end the run and 12 to break the entire ice. As for the soft end the runs, Draco is one. Draco is a little hard for me to qualify. So let me talk my way through it a little bit. At strength zero, it provides a trace three that'll give a tag and end the run. So I guess with no breaker, this is an on the bubble analog end the run, right? Cost three. So if the corp doesn't pay, it's three to dodge the trace. But with a breaker, every killer wipes it out for just one. So with the breaker, it's converted from analog to binary, because even Ninja breaks it for one. But then there's an added wrinkle, because the corp can pay extra to add strength. If the corp pays four, you know, let's say it gets it out of mimic range, it still costs Garot and Ninja three. Now it's five for Pipeline and Femme. So I guess not much changes there. It's still three credits to dodge an unboosted trace. So I'm just going to go with taxing on the bubble, right? Because it typically is going to be around three. Uh, the other one is Caduceus. It's similar. There's not all the uncertainty about what its strength is going to be, but it does have a strength of three. It has a trace two and the run subroutine. So Garot can break it for two or three for the entire eyes. The others cost one more. But you could also just pay off the relatively low trace. It's only two. So I suppose this is, because of that trace too, I think you figure the corp doesn't boost it, or if the corp does boost it, then you're all, they're also paying, right? So figure the corp doesn't boost the trace, it's going to cost you two to break, to, to dodge it, it's binary taxing, right? Although, of course, it's a trace, so it could be more. But there are nine sentries that don't have 
an end the run subroutine. Data Raven kinda ends the run. So these are all some version of taxing. Now, killers are generally harder to deal with. So all of our normal breakers uh, break all of them for at least two. Shadow costs two. Garot will also break Matrix Analyzer and Neural Katana for two. But all the rest of them, it's three. So now they're up to the on the bubble range. Uh, Data Raven's on the bubble for Garot also. But you have to take a tag. A tag. So uh, I guess that puts Data Raven into analog two, and everything up is just increasing degrees of analog. It's four for Hunter, five for Ichi, six for Sherlock, ten for Janice, and this is with Garot. Add two or three credits if you're using Fem or Pipeline, or four to six against Janice for those. Except. Right At some point, if we're looking at these that don't end the run, we can't just look at how much it costs to break it. So Hunter has a trace, trace three. So why would you pay four to break it when you can just beat the trace for three? Or, you know, seven for some of the breakers. Or take the tag, and then you pay a click and two credits, which, again, also equals three and shake the tag. So I think we really have to put Hunter on the bubble rather than analog, no matter what the icebreaker is you're using. Same with Ichi. Uh, For three clicks, you can dodge everything. Or for two clicks and a trace one, which is very easy to beat. So you could also see this as being on the bubble. But then again, I said Eli and Victor were analog because you're paying two clicks uh, to get through them. And that's the same here, two clicks and a, even a small trace, maybe three clicks. So I think it's fair to say that Ichi is also on the low end of analog taxing. In fact, it's more dangerous than those other two because taxing ice can often be more problematic than end the run ice. Let's take a look at Sherlock costs six for Garot to pay through, but why would you do that when you can just spend two clicks? I mean, there's also the two trace fours, but that seems even more expensive because if you have no link, now you're up to eight. But still, there's a pretty significant difference between Eli and Victor costing two clicks or four credits and Sherlock costing two clicks or six credits or eight for Pipeline or 10 for Femme. So I think that solidly pushes Sherlock off the the bubble into strongly into analog taxing. And Janice, there's no question that this is a big analog taxing ice. At best, you can get through with no breaker for your entire turn and a brain damage. And it's a pile of credits even with a breaker. So that is a big tax. Oh, and there's Woodcutter, which I talked about at length last week. If it has one or two subs, it's going to be binary taxing. And with three, it's on the bubble. And with four or more, it becomes analog taxing. But that seems insane. So I'm just going to consider it binary taxing. I'm going to figure nobody's putting four advancement counters on Woodcutter. So to summarize our 13 centuries, our 13, uh, yeah, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 13. I counted right. 
You have your one binary and the run in roto turret. You have several binary taxing, shadow, caduceus, neural katana, matrix analyzer, and woodcutter. You have a few that are on the bubble, again, depending on your matchup, data raven, draco, and hunter. You have your one big analog and the run in archer. And you have three increasingly big analog taxing pieces in Ichi, Sherlock, and Janus. Now, this has all been with Garot. So how does it change if the runner has a different breaker? Now, as I've been going, I've been talking about Femme and Pipeline. Femme and Pipeline just make everything more expensive, push everything up into the analog range. But Ninja, let's talk about Ninja. Ninja is just bad against low-strength sentries. Whereas everything breaks Chimera or a one-strength Draco or the end the run on Roto Turret for just one credit, it costs Ninja three because of his weird boost rate. And with Shadow, Ninja is twice as expensive and Woodcutter can get ridiculous. But, but Ninja gets better the stronger the ice is. It's just as good as Famine Pipeline against the mid-range stuff Matrix Analyzer, Neural Katana, Caduceus. Uh, I, that's, that's low range. Anything mid-range or above, Ninja's as good as Garot. And sometimes it's better. It breaks both Hunter and Janus for less. So Ninja's weird. But killers are all weird. So, that's a basic rundown on sorting for all of the current ice in the game as compared to the normal breakers. Now seems like a good time to talk about the Anarch stuff. Fixed strength breakers are difficult to evaluate as they either work or they don't. Morningstar, the fractor, stomps all over the barriers in the current pool. It's actually a little hard for me at this moment to look at it and not wonder why we wouldn't consider Morningstar to be the best of the fractors. Only Heimdall and Hadrian's Wall are out of range by one or two, and you can click through Heimdall or handle it with a little help from Ice Carver or a Data Sucker token. And then it's one to break however many subroutines there are. So in Morningstar's eyes, everything is binary on the run. Uh, though Hadrian's Wall does start to become a little more analogy because it needs more help from its other tools. Yogg is not as dominant. And that's normal, right? This is typically barriers are easier to break. Code gates are a little harder. Sentries are the hardest. Now, Yogg just ignores pop-up window and Enigma and Chimera. But with a little help from the other Anarch tools, it can also zero out Chum and Viper and Victor. And so only Sensei and Tollbooth at five and Cell Portal at seven are a concern. And of those, the only one you're probably going to see is Tollbooth. So it's analog to Yogg. But Yogg turns everything else, with a little bit of help, into binary. And binary, extreme binary, because it costs zero. Mimic isn't quite as good as those two. Again, note the theme. Without support, it can handle about half of the sentries, seven of the 13. Though it sometimes has to spend more than just one. It takes two for Shadow, or two to fully break Roto Turret or Caduceus, or to handle a crazy advanced woodcutter. 
Uh, there's two more that are four strength. Two more killers are four strength and within range of the usual assist of ice carver, data sucker, parasite. But then there's three sentries that are six or more, Sherlock, Archer, and Janus. And they're almost unmanageable. The only sentry that it successfully converts from analog on the bubble to binary is Caduceus. So you have these high-end sentries that are really hard for Mimic to deal with. Interestingly, though, well, there's always Crypsis, but Ninja is pretty great at those high-end sentries. And you do have four memory units, so a reasonable breaker suite could be Corroder for the barriers, Gordian Blade for the code gates, Mimic and Ninja for the sentries. One of the killers handles the low-strength stuff, the other one handles the high-strength stuff. And extra interestingly, the difference between Garot and Mimic on the low-strength is negligible. On things that cost three, there's a, a difference of one credit. And the difference between Garot and Ninja is negligible on the high-strength. Ninja's a touch better on a couple. Mimic costs three. Ninja costs four. Garot costs six. That's three plus four. No, minus one. Garot also takes two MU, just like Mimic and Ninja. I mean, what I'm trying to say is that Garot is basically Mimic plus Ninja in one card. And it's one credit cheaper. But it highlights something that, you know, honestly, I never really understood when I was first, or recognized when I was first playing the game. People talked about having multiple killers. And I always thought, that's so weird. Why would you do that? But here's why you would do that. Because some killers are good in some situations, and some killers are good in other situations. So it's not crazy to have multiple killers. Now, not really taken into account at all in this discussion is the fact that not all tax is the same. Right? So if you have a choice between running through an advanced woodcutter and taking a net damage, or running through Victor, clicking away in the run and taking a brain damage, which one would you choose? I think you'd rather take the net damage. So your relative tax strength, here's the order I'd put them. Uh, the lowest tax is a click, I would say. A tag is a little bit more of a tax. Makes sense, right? It's a click and two credits. Putting a program back on your stack, yeah, I don't know, it's kind of hard. That one and net damage seem to be fairly similar. Uh, but I think both are worse than getting a tag. Brain damage is worse yet. But I think trashing a program is the worst tax that you have to deal with because it can really mess you up for the, uh, the rest of the time. So this is a lot of information to present in an audio format. I understand that. So what I've tried to do for my own purposes, but also for you, the good listener, is to put it into a graphical form. Uh, graphical is maybe making it a bit strong. I made a spreadsheet. I'm going to link it in the show notes. And uh, there are some codes and stuff on there to indicate um, B is for binary, A is for analog, T is for taxing, E is for end the run. And then I've, I've also coded the different types of taxes, T for tag, 
uh, P for program trash, B for brain damage, K for click. Uh, so take a look at it. Let me know what you think. Let me know how it could be improved. Uh, I color-coded it so that you can see which ones are harder to deal with, and I sorted them, kind of mixed all the, all the types together. But anyway, take a look at it. Give me feedback. I'd like to make it better. I'm open to suggestions. Uh, one more thing to discuss on this topic is support cards that can change these categorizations. It just generally seems important to recognize when something that you thought would be analog suddenly becomes binary. Now, the runners have a host of things that can impact your eyes. The obvious ones are all of the Anarch ice interaction tools, Data Sucker, Parasite, Ice Carver. They also have Cyber Feeder, which gives free credits for using programs, and so that makes the ice less effective. Criminal has E3 feedback implants, which can make expensive breakers much cheaper to use and then just really gut the effectiveness of bioroids. Shaper has tinkering that can negate your advantage for a turn. Net shield that makes pinging net damage even less of an irritant. The helpful AI kind of functions as like two data sucker tokens for a turn. A dinosaurus kind of is like two data sucker tokens forever for that particular icebreaker. But then uh, the corp also has some tools, and typically lesser used, that might be worth considering. Jinteki has Edge of World, which basically all of a sudden says, oh, you know what? There was brain damage on all those ice. NBN has Shiloh City Grid that just makes traces much less appealing to run through. And uh, HB has a couple of tools that can suddenly, unexpectedly convert binary ice into analog. Corporate Troubleshooter suddenly ups the strength of an ice. Experiential Data gives all ice plus two strength. And that plus two, I've often looked at that. Here we go again. I've said this a million times. I've thought plus two, eh, that's not much. But adding two strength to almost any ice that's binary, boom, now it's taxing. Two is a lot. So those are some tools that they have. Oh, yeah. And there's also data mine. Mandatory upgrades. Pop-up window. Let me just squeeze this one last little segment in here. Pop-up window is great. Pop-up window should go in many decks. It's only one influence. It doesn't cost anything to res. And it doesn't stop the runner. That's true. But it's so annoying. And it is a two-credit swing. Yes, it only taxes the runner for one credit, but it also gives you a credit automatically, even if they have yog. So a two-credit swing every single time they run through? That's not nothing. You might want to consider putting pop-up window in your deck. Most of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. Um, I guess I should have said that up top, but they're all in there in case you need to follow along at home. Music is provided by Alexi Action, the website, netrunner2.1.com. There is a Discord server that you can go for reboot to find games and play games at retechie.fun. 
You can contact me and tell me what a huge jumbled mess this entire episode was, or how incredibly insightful it was, by messaging me on Discord or BoardGameGeek or Reddit or Stimhack. My username is Auberman. Email address is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. And coming up is the Astroscript pilot program as we take a look, moving on from NBN to Wayland. Well, sort of. There's a one about New Angeles called The City That Never Stops, and then an article about Wayland called Building a Better Tomorrow. These are both coming from the Worlds of Android book. So I will not see you in a week, be a week and a half-ish. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The City That Never Stops New Angeles is the biggest and grandest, richest and poorest, most splendid and most awful city in the entire world. It sprawls over 60,000 square kilometers, covering most of what used to be the coast of Ecuador and marching up into the Andes near Quito, and surrounding Volcan Cayambe, where the beanstalk is tethered. The land area was leased from Ecuador, first as a small patch by the Wayland Consortium, and then as a larger swath by the United States, while the space elevator transitioned from fantasy to reality. The region was initially called the Special Economic Zone of Ecuadorian New Los Angeles a name that lasted maybe ten minutes before being cut down to New Angeles by everyone involved. As the home to the New Angeles space elevator, New Angeles is the Earth's port city. Everything that goes up or comes down the beanstalk passes through New Angeles, which makes the city rich. It also means that the megapolis is among the most diverse in the world, with people from every nation and ethnicity on the planet thronging its plazas and slidewalks. There are many Ecuadorians, or expatriate Ecuadorians, as the case may be, but most of the city's wealth and power is concentrated in the hands of megacorps, whose founders' and employees' roots are far from New Angeles. For the rich, New Angeles is paradise. It has the trendiest night spots and the most luxurious arcologies, and every need is catered to by android servants. Well-paid corp and government employees, as well as investors and financiers, form an upper class referred to as Risties by those further down the ladder. The middle class struggles to maintain its modest prosperity working white-collar jobs for inadequate paychecks and a slew of corporate benefits that keep them housed, fed, and dependent on their employers. As for the working poor, their wages have fallen for decades, and their employment status remains uncertain given the rise of android labor in blue-collar jobs. Below them, 
often literally, in the warrens below the towering arcologies and layers of interconnected highways and skyways, are the disenfrancistos, who live outside the system as scavengers, beggars, and criminals. New Angeles itself is outside the system. Its status as an unincorporated territory of the United States grants it many economic advantages, including favorable taxes and tariffs that drive massive growth and prosperity. It also occupies a murky political space in that its status is guaranteed by treaty, but its people are subject to laws that were written by representatives they didn't vote for and are executed by agencies with no base in New Angeles. While many wealthy New Angelinos maintain primary addresses stateside to enable them to vote in the USA, the middle and lower classes can vote only in local politics. That tension, in addition to constant maneuvering between Congress and City Hall for control over the tax dollars generated by the beanstalk, makes New Angeles feel like a nation unto itself. And why not? By some counts, there are more New Angelinos than residents of the mainland United States. Some argue for a reversion to Ecuador. Others agitate for complete independence. And all the while, the end of the lease agreement with Ecuador approaches, and no one is certain what will happen when that date hits. In short, New Angeles is the world writ small. The rich are very rich. The poor are very poor. The corpse have massive power. The government struggles to retain control. And new technologies constantly threaten to upset the whole system. The sun rises over the infinite skyline of New Angeles, star scrapers, the haze of moisture and pollution, and the root, a matrix of light against a massive shadow. Hoppers clack and hum overhead. Discarded wrappers and plastifoam containers drift in the air, slowly descending to the slums to gather in drifts at the base of affordable housing complexes. A bioroid, its unfeeling silver eyes staring straight ahead, pilots a street hoover, gathering the detritus of life above on its way to some recycling center beyond the edge of the inhabitable. Building a Better Tomorrow The Wayland Consortium is synonymous with the construction of the beanstalk, but the megacorporation is as diverse as it is mysterious, with major stakes in the financial, construction, defense, and even energy markets. The true scope of its portfolio is unknown. Nevertheless, the holding company continues to dominate the NASX index, and it can be counted on to continue doing so for the next several decades at least so long as the beanstalk royalties continue to pour in. Jack Wayland began his company as a vehicle to put his transformative ideas into motion. 
The most famous of these was the New Angeles Space Elevator, nicknamed Jack's Beanstalk, which was finally completed in 35. Its completion heralded the realization of a true space age and paved the way for humankind to colonize the moon and Mars. Although he was ultimately pushed out of the company by his own board of directors, Wayland was also responsible for many of the first arcologies built in New Angeles, Neo-Tokyo, and Mumbad. The Megacorp's subsidiary contractors continued to lead the field of architectural design and produce countless advancements in structural engineering, with executive Elizabeth Mills steering Wayland's lucrative construction holdings in New Angeles. The Megacorp's governing board of directors comprises a handful of permanent members, as well as several rotating directors collected from its diverse portfolio of companies. The consortium deals in smaller corps like a normal company deals in product by buying low, restructuring or realizing the company's potential, and then turning it around to be sold or liquidated at a massive profit. In addition to financing startup corporations and investing in innovation, Wayland's Titan Transnational is one of the leading central banks and a major player in the risk management and insurance industry. Titan Transnational Bank is perhaps best known for issuing and backing the ubiquitous credit currency, formerly known as the Titan Transnational Trade Credit, that is used by megacorps and individuals alike to partially insulate international and interplanetary transactions from variations in the foreign exchange markets. Just before the war broke out, Wayland began investing heavily in weapons technology and the defense industry. Argus Security matured into one of the best Prysec concerns in the solar system and rented out its mercenaries to help quell the rebellions on Luna and Mars. Argus also researched and developed its own brands of mass driver weaponry and caseless ammunition, which found their way onto both sides of the conflict. When the fighting was over, Wayland was able to quickly snap up reconstruction contracts to rebuild countries that were devastated by Argus's own forces in the war, including the colonies on Luna. Wayland has profited immensely by investing in the technology behind fusion power fueled by helium-3. Its Blue Sun reactor on the moon powers much of the Heinlein colony including its myriad life support systems. The consortium's specialty research projects at locations such as the Geothermal Research and Neothermal Development Laboratories will guard against fluctuations in the helium-3 market. Such volatility has been known to occur intermittently due to strikes by Space Elevator Authority workers. But the price spikes were most keenly felt during the lunar insurrection that precipitated the war. In the coming years, Wayland has a number of ambitious projects slated for development on Mars that will transform Bradbury Colony into a true megapolis with a space elevator of its own. The company knows humanity's future lies among the stars, 
and pioneering projects like Gagarin Deep Space will take human civilization the farthest it's ever been, past the asteroid belt to the moons of Jupiter and beyond.